Welcome to the Feisty Women's Performance Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Gross, Ironman champion, PhD in women's history, and founder and CEO of Feisty Media. I started this show because I wanted to cut through the BS of diet culture and fitness culture and actually learn from high achieving women at the top of their game who have figured out how to feel and perform their best at every stage of life. So I chat with experts, elite athletes, and leaders who have learned to succeed despite the massive gender data gap in exercise and medical science and product development. Every episode is filled with information, advice, and anecdotes that will help you fulfill your potential as an athlete, mom, leader, or business owner. And listen up. If you don't subscribe to our women's performance newsletter, you are definitely missing out. It's totally free. So head over to womensperformance.com and subscribe now. That's womensperformance.com. This podcast is a production of Feisty Media. Hi, Feisties. I'm going to jump straight into it this week because I had a very long and meaningful conversation with my guests this week. They are Jill Moffat and Jen Casson, who are our Olympic lightweight pair here in Canada for rowing. Uh, and they went to Tokyo. I guess it was technically Tokyo, supposed to be Tokyo 2020, but it was actually in 2021. They finished 12th there and are currently gunning for Paris 2024. These two are quite the duo. They're, as you'll see, they're full of energy. They never run out of interesting stories and things to talk about. Jill is a, as well as being an Olympic rower, Jill is also a freelance journalist. She's a director for voice in sport, and she is also a role model for fast and female. So she is a busy woman. Jenny claimed rowing machine world records in the 6,000 meter and 2,000 meter in 2019. So she is an incredible powerhouse. We talked about their training because, you know, in the endurance world, rowing training is kind of well known to be grueling. So I talked about how they managed that, whether they used their female physiology at all or tracked it to, um, and whether it changed any of their training. Um, we talked a lot about what it's like to train in a pair and together <laughs> try to communicate in a way that is productive and gets the best out of each other um, day in, day out. And then we had a long conversation about um, they about survive, essentially surviving a very toxic culture and situation that um, was happening in uh, rowing Canada and here in Victoria a few years ago um, with a coach um, who essentially, I mean, you will hear the stories, but essentially broke every rule of safe sport and kind of in the environment that was created that kind of supported that. And rowing is not the only sport we, you know, we've seen it. USA Gymnastics is the, is, was the massive, you know, story. But I think anyone who's been in an elite sports environment can relate or even, you know, honestly, I think even in corporate environments or sub elite um, sport environments, I think we can all relate a little bit to the stories that they tell. So super interesting. And then at the end, we sort of talk about how they now identify what a positive culture looks like, what to and what to look for. So big thank you again to 
Jill and Jenny for being so open with this conversation. And I hope you all enjoy it as well. Jenny, chill. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you. We're so excited. We're very pumped to be here. Thanks. Yes. Yeah, I'm excited too. Uh, so my first question, I mean, I have to ask this. I also, I actually went to university in Kingston. Um, yeah. <laughs> and I was, I had a couple of friends that were like on the rowing team, whatever, but how does someone become an Olympic rower? Maybe Jenny, do you want to start there? Me? Yeah. Um, it, Honestly, there are like countless ways to start rowing. It's definitely a late, uh, late introduction sport. So you can come from a different sport. You can pick it up in university. You can start in high school in Europe. You can start when you're like four. Um, but yeah, I mean, I definitely would say like my personal experience was a lot of luck and a lot of right place, right time. Um, and eventually a lot of hard work. <laughs> But I got into rowing because in high school, I got stress fractures because I was a track athlete and um, puberty and track and field did not intersect well. And so a lot of weight on me gave me some stress fractures. And uh, my rowing coach was a teacher, saw me and was like, come try it. And I hated it. And then I kept doing it because I liked my teammates and I had fun and I stuck with it. And then um, we have this a test in, in rowing. It's like you do a two kilometer test or a six kilometer test. And they're sort of a, like on the arc, like on the rowing machine, like someone would use in a gym. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Those exact machines. (laughs) And we use those as kind of like a universal equalizer and measuring a raw strength, I would say. Um, so I did a 2k test, submitted it, didn't know what I wanted to do after university, but I got a scholarship offer, went down there, um, to university of Tulsa. Sorry, I should be clear where I went and rode there. And then Fast forward a couple of years, uh, submitted another 2K to the national team through this program called Radar, which is how they scan basically who's doing what in the country. Um, and, uh, you know, got on the team and stuck around since then. That's my story. But oh. you, you broke some records on the ERG. Am I right about that? Yeah. 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 Um, in 2018, I broke the 2K record. And then in 2019, I broke the 6K record, um, which was which was pretty cool. Never really thought I would do that, <laughs> but it just sort of happened. And then, um, yeah, it's, it's awesome that I was able to do that. But I'm working every single day after those, those tests to put it on the water. And that's the hard part. Yeah. We have a saying in rowing where it's the erg doesn't float. And I'm like the <laughs> testament to that. <laughs> so, yeah. Nice. I love it. Okay, Jill, what about you? How did you get into rowing? Yeah, I'm a bit different, but it's like a pretty common story in rowing. Like Jenny said, it's a late entry sport. So I didn't start till university. Um, in Canada and the States, they do a really good job at having like novice programs or walk on in the States where rowing is like one of those really good sport transfer things. So if you're a good cross-country skier, Mm -hmm. runner, cyclist, um, cyclist, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Cyclist. It's very easy. Like those cardio bases, it's really easy to transfer over. Um, and you can pick it up later. So I did a lot of running in high school. Like my claim to fame was I made it to Offsa once for steeplechase. And I was thought I was the best runner on planet earth, even though I don't think I was top 15. 
Um, but then also loved cross country in high school, but then didn't, I wasn't super good. I enjoyed it, but I wasn't meddling. I, we were, had a really fun team. And so I thought, oh, that's like the end of my running career. I'm not going to do it in university. And then I ended up kind of serendipitously trying out for the novice rowing team. I got approached to the gym with my friends mm-hmm. uh, just to try out for their novice day. And I ended up being like the last person to make it, but really, really enjoyed it. I really love the team environment. I went to Western University. So it was nice to feel being from a small town, having a place in this really big university. And rowing is one of those sports where you can pick it up late and you can kind of, it's like the work that you put in is what you get out of it. And so I found that my fitness really transferred over well, the lessons I had from running and we had a really great coach in high school. So all those kind of like lessons we learned really helped. And then it was, yeah, one of those things kind of just went to the next. We have really good we have a really great system here in Canada. Rowing is a very small world. So you know what the targets are for the indoor rowing machine for certain levels. And as you hit them and then you race, you know, Canadian university rowing championships. If you want to pursue the under 23 team, you know, those options are there of how to make it. So they make it very clear. And then one thing led to the next, but me and Jenny, I don't know, Jenny, I think I can speak for you growing up. I always loved the Olympics, but I never was someone who was like, I'm going to find my sport and go to the Olympics. I was never someone who was like, oh, I'm so naturally talented. I'm just going to find something that works for me. I'm not naturally talented. I, I think I obviously have a good amount of natural talent, but I'm someone who likes to work very hard and same with Jenny. So I feel like we found, we both found a sport a different way that really it paid off. So I think for both of us, the right things kind of happened very naturally, but I think both of us never sit out. I didn't touch a rowing oar and go, wow, I'm going to go to the Olympics one day. I was like, I just want to have my friends and go to like the end of year party and then maybe do the next team. So yeah, it's pretty cool. There's a lot of people on my team who are very similar, who started rowing in university. One girl on our team started rowing at like 30. So it's never too late. If anyone's Yeah. Yeah. She was a hotel wow. manager and then she ended up winning a gold medal. At the Tokyo Olympics. Yeah. Hotel. That is wild. Yeah. Andrea Prosk. She was incredible. But yeah, you can really enter from any age. Um, a good fitness background helps, but it's something that like you can really pick up. It was always my impression with rowing that if you had like a decent sized engine, like to work really hard, right? And like just had that kind of grit that you could, you know, that you could kind of make an impact. That's kind of what I'm hearing you say. Yeah. A thousand percent. I think that, and then like an ability, obviously, because it's different. Well, not different than cycling, but you are stuck in a physical boat with someone. So there's also the, or like eight people at a time potentially. So you have to be able to like work well with others, but yeah, it's like that difference between like, yeah, it's like fitness and art. Like there's also a technique side to it. You have to, sometimes swimmers are good because they have a natural feel for the water. Mm-hmm. Like some people just have a good feel. Mm. where they may not be super fit, but they just, for some reason, it clicks in their brain. There are other people who are super fit and it doesn't click. And then it takes like a lot of coaching. Um, but yeah, definitely a late entry sport, not like, you know, gymnastics where unless you're at the top of your age group at six, you're never going to make it. It's a little bit. Right. 
Yeah, I love that. Or even swimming, you know, you like, you kind of have to have that technique down. I, I once, <laughs> random story, but when I, when I was, I did my PhD in the UK and I dated this guy who was a rower and he, um, he had rowed for Cambridge, but was like post that, you know, at the time. And we went, he was like with a local rowing club and we went to Henley. Right? Oh. And, Eddie, have you ever been to Henley? We're going this year. Oh, you are. Okay. So cool. So he said to me, he was like, and like, you know, they all dress up and they wear, the women wear like hats and like, and he was like, I don't know how to take you. Like, I don't know how you can come watch. Like, it's like, like he was like, I, are you going to get a dress and a hat? Like what's going to happen? Here? So uh, it's probably changed since then. This is like 20 no. years ago. No. Exactly. <laughs> no. Yeah. They have like rules. Me and Jenny are in this right now, but we're trying to buy dresses they're very it's very like prim proper there's strict rules like no slit above the knee uh jenny looked into the rules the other day but yeah they won't let you enter like if you're not and the men have to be dressed a certain way as well it's very i mean yeah maybe not super inclusive and not super diverse but it looks like it's gonna be fun Oh, it would totally be fun just to see. Well, it totally was fun just to see. But he ended up getting me like a um like an athlete pass. So I had like a little tag on my shoe that said athlete. Because he's like, well, we can pass you off as a lightweight rower, but we but you cannot do the like do the other spectating thing. And then it was funny because like I remember we we had figured it out that like the amount of I forget how long his race was, maybe a couple K. 2K, uh, yeah. 2K? Yeah. His race. The speed they would go in their boat, I think they were a four, was like the exact speed of my like top end run speed. <laughs> so we decided I was going to try to get a photo of the beginning and and the finish line. And I was like sprinting my ass off, like trying to get to the finish line in time. And I smacked right into like Matthew Pinsent, who like, <laughs> and you can imagine it was hot. Like it was his, like my face was at his stomach level. Like it was like. It's <laughs> hot. He's a big dude. Yeah. And I was like, sorry. And that's why I missed, missed the finish line. <laughs> oh, oh my gosh. He probably was like, that sucks. Can you, can we, can we go see, can we go say sorry to him? Can we just yeah. go say hi? <laughs> like, and he was with James Cracknell and I was just like, oh, uh, uh. <laughs> uh, it was right after there. I, th- I think it was like Matthew's third Olympics. I don't know how many he went yeah. to. They're kind of like OGs. <laughs> Yeah. So that was like my one experience at a regatta. That is like the beginning of the end, but I'm excited. That's for like you a guys. peak experience though. Right. Like you, <laughs> any like, other ones, like you skipped right to the, like, I'm going to meet the most famous men in like Great Britain rowing. And then I'm also going to go to the biggest event. Yeah. Just like <laughs> straight to the top of it out. That That's my experience. Um, but so you two, from when, like, I'm talking to you. You seem kind of like a match made in heaven in terms of like <laughs> the, you know, like the good juju you have between you, the communication. Like, is that true? <laughs> I'm going to make a joke. You go, Jenny. When you go through hell with someone, mm-hmm. it's kind of hard to have it any other way. Like we are not perfect. Um, there, it's not like a straight line. We get on each other's nerves like all the time, but it's like a marriage, right? I mean, we're in that boat all the time together. Um, the thing about Jill and I is Jill already touched on it. And I, 
I've always believed she doesn't give herself enough credit, but she just works so hard. And I definitely am someone that, yeah, like I work hard, but I also like can't have anyone like I'll work as hard as the hardest working person, if that makes sense. But I'll stop when I'm that because I'm like, okay, like I just need to work hard. And then so with Jill there, like she always is like pushing me and pushing me and pushing me. And I'm like, oh my God. And so that naturally brings a a lot of respect. And I think that's something that are, is like fundamental in our relationship and has been since the beginning. Like there have been multiple other lightweights in the event. Obviously we weren't, we didn't just like choose to go in the double and we're like, yeah, this is our boat. Like we've had to go through a lot of different, different teammates, different processes, different races. Um, But something that I think was the foundation of our relationship was the respect from day one. Um, and then growing from there, I mean, Jill is also someone that like, you can't like, she just radiates like radiates positivity and she's very, very friendly to everyone. And I'm, I'm very different than that, but she's never tried to change me. Whereas a lot of other people that I've rode with have been like, you need to be less grumpy because you're like miserable and you know, da, da, da. but that's just how, like, that's the kind of athlete I am. Like I'm just stone cold and quiet. <laughs> like, yeah, I'm, I'm a hot head for sure. But Jill's like found a way that she brings that out of me in a really positive way. And I had never had anyone else be able to do that for me. And so that's like inside the boat that it works really well. Um, and let's be clear, we've had to do a lot of work and there have been times where it was, we were not getting back on that water. Actually, there was one time that we were so mad at each other. So we were out on the water. We did like probably like an hour and a half session where like we in the boat, if you're not on the same rhythm in a double, you just fight each other. So like one person's doing one thing and the other person's doing the other thing. And it is terrible. It is like a tandem bike. And someone's riding backwards and you're trying to go forward. And someone's like, <laughs> it's awful. And so we had a row like this. And we were just like, when you row with someone for so long, you can feel their energy. And both of our energies were like, I'm going to kill you. And a totally trans, we hadn't talked. And then we we're like going into the dock. You're we both pissed. We we're both going to leave just like so angry. We get to the dock. We flip in the water. We had never flipped. We had never flipped. All of a sudden we just flip in the water. We start like hysterical laughing. We're like, we're so, this sport is so dumb. Like, what are we doing? In absolute denial of the fact that we were just about to kill each other. And it's just like moments like that, that I think are unique in like our relationship specifically. And yeah, going back to what I said at the beginning, like we've also been through hell together and that takes like years of your life. (laughs) So when you've been through that, it's hard to ever think of someone that's been a- alongside of you. I I would say, mm-hmm. and that like then then yeah, pretty much my partner. <laughs> yeah, I think for us, it's like interesting because with rowing, the way it works in Canada is like you don't pick your partner and decide. Oh, we're going to train this event and then we'll qualify on our own. Like we're in a centralized training program, so you know, you have a group of people in this program and then you hope to be selected into the boat. Um, So there's been times where, you know, we haven't been in the boat together times where we have. So that relationship always depends on both of us making the boat. So we don't pick like, oh, Jenny, you're my partner for the next three years and I'm going to row with you no matter what anyone else says. Like at the end of the day, we don't have that control. So like if I make the boat, 
you want to be with like the fastest person. And through a lot of hard work, Jenny and I have ended up in that scenario together a couple of times. And, you know, we've always, cause we, we met each other probably back in 2017 um, when I was on the senior team and Jenny was coming up and we always really clicked off the water. Like, I think we're similar, like similar interests. We talk the same, we can talk a lot. We're both excitable. So I think we automatically clicked right away. But yeah, Jenny, it's like, we definitely get along very well, but yeah, it is anyone who's like in a two person boat totally gets it. It's like, it is almost as if you're in a marriage because you spend every day together. Their mood is your mood. If they, they, it's just, you really have to find a process that works when you're spending so much time with one another. Um, but it definitely helps when you generally get along and have interests outside of sport because then we're, we're friends outside of sport right? as well. Um, yeah. And so are you two, are you qualified already for Paris or are you still in that process? Yeah, we're in that process. It's okay. for us, there are two opportunities to qualify. Um, it's funny because it, it, even in our event alone, it varies. So there's like Pan Am qualifiers, but we can go to those that won't give us a bid for the Olympics, but it will give a bid for like other countries. So we're not included in any of those external qualifications. So there's like, you'll correct me if I'm wrong here and correct me if I miss some, but there's like European or there's a, a African qualifier, a Pan American, South African qualifiers of Pan Ams. And then no, the, I'll, I'll jump in. The Pan Ams is a different thing. What's it called? The South African one? It's the African qualifiers. So what we'll have is we'll have like a world championships the year before the Olympics. And, and then everyone shows up to that world championships to compete for a spot for the Olympics. And for our event, it's top seven. So say 20 countries show up, only seven countries qualify for the Olympics. The Olympics are a lot smaller than a world championship. It's oh. like a quarter of the people. There's so only seven boats in your Only category? seven boats. And then they'll do seven boats. And then the next year they'll take top two, they'll take top two. Um, but this is where it gets tricky and what Jenny was saying. So in order for the Olympics to meet its mandate of being diverse and having different continents, all be able to compete and not just the top seven rich countries, but what they'll do is they'll do top two from the African qualifiers, top two from the like American qualifiers, but we don't count uh, us in the States unless you have no boats that qualified, then you can go to that one. But typically the United States and Canada qualifies a lot of boats the at the normal world championship so it's more for chile um brazil countries like that um there's a european one that'll take the top two to europe and then we'll go to what's called like a last chance qualifying regatta where any country can go to that one and then it's top two right so it'll be like top seven and then usually the two more at the general one and though so usually it's like top nine to twelve are the top countries it's kind of confusing but it it's weird that way but it ensures that there's representation from every continent at the olympics um with other boat categories that's different qualification spots so for instance like the men's or the women's double it will be top 11 i believe from uh qualification from this year's world championships so 
that gets really crazy because in our event, if you're in the B final, you're racing for that top spot. But in, in the heavyweight double event, if you're in the B final, you're racing not to get last. And oh, wow. I don't know it's worse. Yeah. Like it's, <laughs> those, those races are mental. Like honestly, at world champs, like those are kind of the races to watch because you people fighting for their lives. It yeah. is crazy. Um, and then like the eights too. I mean, there's so many, so many less eights, uh, just obviously because it's eight people to fill a boat. And so they are top five, I believe. Five. Um, yeah, that qualify. So yeah, it gets crazy. And then, but, and in the Canadian context, you two have been chosen to be the lightweight doubles boat. Is that, or are there yeah. other lightweight doubles pairs that you're also <laughs> like, fighting for a position. <laughs> so right now, Jenny and I are the only senior lightweight women in the program. There's just the two of us. So right now we're selected into the double for world cups. Um, and then they'll do possibly another intake for world championships. So um, right now it's Jenny and I for the world cups. And then we'll be reconfirmed for world championships if we're both healthy and make the boat. But yeah, we all train in the same area right now. It's just Jenny and I in the program. Um, but yeah, we're not like the lightweight double until then it could change at any moment. Also, if I broke my rib, they were going to find someone else to put in the boat or if we stop performing, we go to world cups and we're really off target for that qualification top seven spot. Then they're probably going to, you know, do the nine one one call. Um, but yeah, we're not like set. Uh, we get like set for each regatta we go to is how it's technically done right that feels like a lot of pressure like how do you deal sort of mentally with that pressure I, it's just one of those I mean you have to accept it like you right. really can't you can't act as though anything is set and I think the biggest like the clearest way you can say it is you did not qualify that boat qualified like you the individual did not qualify so the lightweight double, we're hoping to qualify the lightweight. We're hoping to qualify the lightweight double this year, but Jenny and Jill are not qualified. So say like this boat gets qualified this year and some, you know, shining star comes in next year and takes my spot. I'm out. It's about speed, okay. baby. And Whoa, that was weird, <laughs> but it's about speed. <laughs> um, so that's what it comes down to. And ultimately, like if you are, you really have to think of yourself as a competitor and as a racer. And at the end of the day, like we're all racers, we're all trying to go as fast as we can. Mm -hmm. And if someone is going to come into that boat and be faster than me, and that boat can go and be faster than with me, with with be faster without me in it, mm -hmm. that's the way it is. So like you can only control you control, and you really have to accept that. But you have to, you know, put your best foot forward every single day because it's nothing's guaranteed. I think rowing's like that though, in general, even in in university like there's always like seat racing or you're always kind of getting checked. And so I think it's kind of naturally baked into the process. Um, there's always going to be selection. It's kind of what is expected. Um, I think there's obviously been a bit less pressure for me and Jenny this winter because it's just been us. Um, so we kind of knew we were going to be the double because it was just us in the training center. Um, and so, you know, we've been in the center with four or five people, six people, and that can obviously be a lot more like stressful depending on like the environment you're in, but it's something all of our teammates are dealing with right now. They're going to do selection this weekend for some of the boats. So it's just, it's wow. very 
natural and normal. And I think that helps take the pressure off because it's just normal. Normal, in a sense. Yeah. And like, you have an idea of your, if you're going well or not. And something about our boat too, is we have, we always have to remember, like there is only one lightweight boat and they don't have to send us like Canada does not have to have a lightweight double at the world championships this year. Right. So, and that's, that's the reality. I mean, this is the last Olympics. They're going to have a light, lightweight events. And like, if we're not going fast enough, why would they pay money to have an event that's going to be gone after mm-hmm. Paris? Mm-hmm. So that added pressure and that added need to prove ourselves helps stay motivated when there's no one else in the center. But also like that is a reality. Like if we do a speed check in May, which we're doing, uh, I believe 11th and 12th of May, where we're doing a 2k and seeing how fast we can go compared to the rest of the team. If that goes south, tough questions will have to be asked about whether or not it's worth it. Because like every other sport in Canada, the budget's tight. You're going to cut your losses if it's not going to end up on the podium. As a lifelong runner and triathlete turned CrossFitter, I am stoked to announce that the athletic eyewear brand Tafosi Optics has joined us as a partner here at Feisty Media. Tafosi sports glasses hit all the marks for athletes. They're shatterproof poly bicarbonate, so the lenses not only reduce glare, but also offer scratch resistance, which I 100% need. They stay in place when you are moving. The hydrophilic rubber nose pads actually get more grippy the more you sweat. So they are secure and don't slide down your face even when you're running in hot conditions. No matter what sport you do, Tafosi has shades for you. Whether you love tennis, fishing, pickleball, running, cycling, or just hanging out on the beach. They are super reasonably priced, which I love, so I can have multiple pairs that go with any outfit. And of course, feisty listeners get a special discount. So head on over to tofosioptics.com and use the code FM20. FM as in feisty media to get 20% off your order. That's FM20 at tofosioptics.com. I'll put a link in the show notes to make it easy for you. Building muscle can be tough and gains can be so slow, even for those of us who do a lot of strength training. As an ex-endurance athlete who is now in perimenopause, I know this all too well. It can be frustrating to put in the time in the gym and not see the results I'm looking for. That's why it's super important to take the right supplements at the right time. One of those supplements is essential amino acids, which are needed to trigger muscle protein synthesis. Muscle protein synthesis happens when you eat high quality protein, like eggs or whey. And by supplementing with additional essential amino acids, you can make sure you are getting the full benefit of your training sessions. Targeted essential amino acid formulas can be up to four times more effective than just eating protein. I've been taking amino acids for almost a year, and in combination with eating quality protein and a couple other supplements, I have managed to turn the tides on age-related muscle loss, which starts at 30 for women, by the way, and I have continued to make strength gains as I head towards 50. 
AminoCo has been a longtime sponsor of Feisty Media and has supported all of our brands and podcasts over the years. I recommend starting with AminoCo Perform, and you can grab some at aminoco.com forward slash performance. If you enter the code performance, you will save 30% and receive a free gift if it is your first purchase. Give it a try and let me know how it goes. That's aminoco.com forward slash performance and use the code performance to save 30%. For decades, running shoes have been researched, tested, and designed for men. Brands have relied on the shrink it and pink it approach to sell male shoes to female customers. That's why we are so excited to be working with Hedas. Hedas designs athletic footwear for women that elevates performance, safety, and style. Hedas unlocks the science behind women's biomechanics through dedicated research, creates better shoes for women that support their longevity and performance, and establishes new design standards to promote transparency in a male-biased industry. Hedas have a lower ankle collar to reduce rubbing, a breathable mesh toe box to allow for ventilation and to allow for female toe shape, a special kind of plate in the midsole to keep tired legs going, a narrow heel cup to reduce heel slippage and take the pressure off our Achilles, and a rounded instep to create a snug fit. Hedas has three shoe models designed for different sessions, the Alma Cruise for long runs, the Alma Tempo for training days, and the Alma Speed for pushing the pace. I've personally been running in the Alma Cruise and I love them. It's the shoe I always wanted and never knew I needed. The fit is perfect in every way. You can get your own pair of Hedas at Hedas.com and use the code FEISTY20 for 20% off. That's FEISTY20 at Hedas.com and it will all be in the show notes. Um, Okay, so speaking of lightweight... um, Let's, you know, you have to weigh in for your sport. This is something that's entirely not part of my world at all. We talk about nutrition a lot on this podcast. Like, how do you manage that pressure to be a certain weight at certain time as well? At the same time, like trying to keep yourselves healthy. Yeah, I think I'll add like the very kind of the parameters. So we're different than boxing. Like we weigh in two hours before our race. So you race at 9 a.m., you'd weigh in at 7 a.m. Um, and then you can you have from 7 a.m. to 8 a.m. to weigh in. So you could weigh in right at 7 or you could weigh in at 8 a.m. Typically, people weigh in once it opens. Mm-hmm. Um, so the reason why they do that compared to boxing is to ensure that people it kind of helps ensure people aren't doing crazy things because you do have to race two hours after. And by crazy things, you like dehydrating yourself or like some of these things we hear. Yeah, about. well, something that boxers do, like the way way they drop weight is a whole other level okay because they have like 24 hours or something they'll drop something insane um so ours is very it's a little bit different that way because you can't do things to yourself that if you have to race two hours later it's not going to be a good time and then for jenny and i we for our event it's a 57 kilos so 125 pounds but you it's interesting you average it so 
we both have to average that weight and the lowest you can be is 55 and the highest you can be is 59. So that's part of the partnership between me and Jenny as well. Like we work together to make that 57. So depending on where we're naturally at, we can like share like, oh, I like we'll kind of do the math. Um, But Jenny, I'll let you answer how we kind of take that into consideration with our training. Yeah, because it's um, it changes over the course of the year. So and also everyone's different. So like I gain weight very easily and I gain weight a lot faster than Jill and a lot more than Jill. But I need to gain that weight um, just because of the way I'm built. So in the winter, like I'll sit, well, I'll, my, I weigh in 57, 58, right? And in the winter, I'll sit anywhere from like 64 to 66 kilos because we're doing a lot longer Ks. It's freezing. I'm eating more. And like my number one goal is recovery. So I can make it through those kilometers and I can have a little bit more meat on my bones to sustain my bone health and, and my overall health. And then we work real closely with our nutritionists um, and Sue Bogman, who's our nutritionist helps us like cut down in a really segmented way um, so that we typically like someone like me, I can sweat a lot and sweating is part of our process. So we'll do like low residue, which is eating bland foods that are low in fiber. So they don't weigh as much in your stomach. Um, And then also we'll sweat out the morning before if we need to. So what'll happen is, yeah, you cut down, but you have a cutoff weight that you want to be sitting at. And then you take care of the last kilo or whatever is left over um, the morning of. So essentially I'll ultimately want to be flying over and be at around 60 because I actually sweat closer to two kilos. And that's just something that I can naturally do pretty easily. Like it doesn't take much out of me. Um, a very fast sweater. She worked yeah. for a minute and she's like pouring sweat. And I'm like, oh, oh, it takes me forever. Yeah. I don't know why. Like it's super weird. And it's, pre- I used to be, it's so funny. Cause I used to be so embarrassed about it, but now I'm like, this is the best thing ever. Cause like I can eat more obviously. Um, but yeah, it's tough in the sense that you really have to be on it because if you don't understand your body and you don't understand what your body needs and what your body can live without, um, it, it's not going to be a good time. And you also can't like limit, like risk your quality of life. Like that's not going to make you a happy athlete. So you have to be able to like work closely, be open and transparent with your nutritionist, with experts, because you're probably like in my situation, definitely not an expert. And then lean on those people for guidance and advice, um, and plan, like we plan so far and ahead so that it's not, you know, you show up two weeks before you're flying out and you're like, Hey, I'm four kilos overweight. What do I do? And then it's like alarm button, whatever else. So yeah, it's just a lot of planning. I think too, we should be clear. We only, because we race in the summertime, we'll only have three weigh-ins at that weight the entire year. So it's not something that we're constantly thinking about. It's like, we'll go to world cup two and three, about three weeks apart, or we'll have to do it. And then almost two months later. So it does make it quite manageable where it's not like every race we do, we're weighing in. Like when we race in the fall, like either we won't weigh in or it'll be a much higher weight. University is the same way uh, in university. They have weigh-ins as well. So it's something that you kind of get used to doing through university. Then as you progress on the senior team. Um, But yeah, it's definitely done with experts like helping us and guiding us so that we're like ensuring that like how Jenny said, our quality of life is really high. We're enjoying ourselves. 
Um, and we're not putting our bodies at risk. Like we've been both in part of like right S studies to check our like bone health. Um, we really watch like, you know, whether or not we're getting our period. I mean, maybe TMI, I'm on an IUD, so it's difficult to know. But before I got one, I was always really regular. It didn't matter what my body fat was. My period for me never changed because I was still getting the energy I needed. Like I was eating enough so that I wasn't getting that like energy deficit. Um, so even at my like lowest body fat, I was still getting my period the same time every single month and like no injuries, no stress fractures because for me, I can sit lower. It's my, the way my body works and I'm pretty robust, but we have a lot of things that we check to ensure that we're on the right page. Right. And also like that kind of brings up for me, like in recent years, we've had, we have a little bit of information now about like how, for example, like our menstrual cycle can affect us in training um, or in racing. Are there ways that you kind of track your cycle and use that to decide your training? Or is that something you don't do? You're like, I'd rather not know. I'll just push through. And, and there's two of you too, right? So like, it's like, just, I don't care if you feel like crap, we got to go today kind of thing. Like, how does that all work? I think because of the limited science that we have on it, it's more at this point in time about, you know, yeah, this sucks, but like do what you can with the, with what you're given type thing. I mean, I'm like, my period is regular until I have to, until round away time. And then it will tend to go away and then come right back. That's another reason I definitely always gain weight after is because I, I want that period back. Um, but I know for sure, like, I would say a week before my period, I started to have like way more cramps and I'm like way angrier and I'm like all those fun emotions that happen. And so I think because I don't have an understanding of the science and we don't really focus on that, we focus a lot more on um, like uh, like moxie, so oxygen uh, in our blood uh, testing for lactate, um, just sort of basic biometrics that sports science use, mm-hmm. but to answer your question, clearly, no, we, we really don't, um, rely on any of our period informations. I track mine monthly, um, and note my symptoms and I'm aware of that. Like, I know when I had to whip out that heating pad, um, but other than <laughs> that, <laughs> you know, it's, it's something I would love to know more about. And I would love to know about what the soccer team did. Um, but yeah. Yeah. I think the only decision I've made on it is, I wasn't on birth control because I liked, I knew that I was so regular. So for me, it was a good check to ensure that like, as I was making away, I was like, okay, well, that is a sign that like clearly my body's functioning. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but then I wanted to go on birth control in 2020. And a part of the conversation we had was what kind, like an IUD birth control pill form. And it was actually recommended to us. Um, and maybe I'll get you to fact check just to ensure it's up to date science that like, um, birth control could potentially lower testosterone in some cases we have very little we got our testosterone tested i wish we had more um it's quite low but um that was like one of the things they're like oh usually we just recommend actually an iud um over birth control for that reason for athletes so i picked the iud and also self i thought it was weird i was like oh i, I kind of like having a period i don't like the idea of manufacturing the fact that you don't get it i think that's mm-hmm. kind of weird mm-hmm. but haven't looked back. Um, and for me, I didn't realize how bad my period cramps were because I would get such bad cramps. And I would tell Jenny, like, oh, it hurt so bad. And the second I started like my IUD, I didn't get that anymore. And then the additional thing is because we weigh in, 
it was also helpful to be on IUD because I wasn't getting that bloating from a period. So that, but interestingly enough, if you get bloated from period, you also sweat faster because you're bloated. Oh, I didn't know that. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So it was kind of like that, the decisions around birth control and kind of did impact our conversations around weigh-ins and another controllable factor was, oh, I know I'm not going to have with an IUD, my, my full period, like my full blown period, the week of our world championships and then be bloated. Um, but in terms of using it for training, we don't have any direction yet. And I think still the science community is still trying to figure out. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that, I think what we recommend now is like to track and see if there, if there is any difference. Like, so when I think about it, like one of the things I wish I had done is like, I knew that I was a little bit stronger or go, go harder in the follicular phase, you know, than, than in like at least a late luteal phase. So, or right before I menstruated. And I wish I had just like got honest about taking that into account of like, maybe I could do like an extra hard session in that week or that training block and then have an extra rest day or even half a day like when I was feeling crappy and I feel like those little things so it does sound like just from what you described like Jenny you said no you don't you guys don't do but like if you're tracking I think there's probably things that you know that you don't even think about taking into account you know it's like it explains maybe why you're in a bad mood for example which I could see would affect in terms of what you talked about in your interpersonal dynamic like that would affect knowing that affects it right yeah, there was some sports science research where it is interesting, though, with the research as well, because they'll be like, oh, it only impacted about a percent of output. So it's not statistically significant or, you know, it's not that much of an impact. One percent at our level right. is a huge impact. One percent is the difference between sitting on third place and sitting in eighth place. So I am also interested, too, like in terms of what is significant as an impact when we're doing studies. It's like when you're talking about like milliseconds yeah one percent is gonna help and if you can adjust the way you're training that would be like huge i know um our teammate kit um when she was cycling she tracked her period and she did notice like during certain stages like she'd be 20 watts less or 20 watts more and knew okay i just need to push through because my watts are going to be better or worse i forget which one it was Mm -hmm. um so i do you know i think it would i i'm very excited and jealous of maybe 15 years from now, the information that people will yeah. be I think we're beginning to see a bit of it. And I think because we're in a two person boat, we can adapt if we're noticing trends. Uh, we haven't noticed any big trends um, yet in terms of what we're seeing, but I think it's something we're always watching. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, to, it's to your point that like a 1% difference can be a huge difference for you. Right. So, and making those micro adjustments can help. I was going to say, if the studies are being like done on say marathoners, like, oh yeah, like 1% better over a marathon. I'm like 1% better for us is like, like Jill said, it's like 0.03 of a second is what we're working with. So <laughs> yeah, totally. Okay, I I need to ask you this because, you know, we we live in the same Victoria sports community, right? And I was aware, like, a few years ago, there was an issue with, like, I don't know how to describe it, like, a toxic culture situation with rowing. Um, And we like to kind of talk about these things and be open. Um, Can you tell us about what happened? Yeah, I don't even (laughs) know where to start. So, I... 
it's like a, it, it, it's something that kind of evolved over time, I would say. And it mm. happened at different times for everyone. Everyone was affected by this person in our environment who came in after Rio and the Rio Olympics and um, came in and started to change things pretty aggressively. Um, and obviously if you're in a position of power, that has great consequences. And I think the way that that person came in and normalized their behavior was the beginning of the end for, for our team mm. um, to have when you some, say team. Do you mean like the, I mean the entire team. team. Yeah. Entire team. Okay. When you have someone like that in the environment, they impact the sports staff they impact the doctor they impact the people who watch us row like passengers on the lake like every single person is impacted by this person's actions or inaction and or i don't know if it's inactions or lack of action but they came into the environment and they picked and chose who would say yes to them and if anyone fought anyone fought his his opinions or his thoughts, they were immediately dismissed for being an idiot or challenging him or not knowing enough. And because of the way that he carried himself, it was undeniable and that he had some success early on. And Canada was in a stage of having no success for quite some time, except for the lightweight double in Rio. So we were just, I guess, hungry for performance and, as time went on, the expressions and explosions became worse, but as it became worse, because it was so gradual, it continued to be normalized. And so the standard of how athletes and staff were spoken to and addressed stemmed from how this man conducted himself because he was the leader and he was the, basically the beginning and the end of culture. Um, because he made it happen. And I think I would add in too that it's uh, it's never just one person, right? So the environment mm-hmm. has to be in such a way that that person sees an opportunity. And I think mm-hmm. now as we're learning, I mean, the entire world is learning about standards around safe sport and what is good coaching, what is normal and what is not. Um, when you have an environment and when I say environment, I mean from the CEO to you know anyone in the environment, staff wise, um, that and athlete wise as well. Um, there was yet to be this change in terms of what we now know as to be safe sport and to be you know old school coaching versus you know coaching with you know empathy and kindness while also still being you know holding that high performance. I think there hadn't been that awareness of that transition. And mm-hmm. so rowing, I I believe is also a sport where it's very, we're like, oh, we're so gritty. And Canadian rowing had this reputation of, of um, character coaches or individuals coming in and really shaping a culture. And I think everyone likes mm-hmm. to work hard and rowing is quite a, like a humble sport as well that everyone kind of just puts their head down and does the work. And so I think this person came into an environment that didn't have checks or balances so I think at times like we can frame it as one person but I think it was an organization as well that was unable to handle 
um, people coming in. And then that got exposed because they're had and, and I think now, I mean, now I'm, you know, I think sport is in a very different place. I hope at least for, you know, they should, it should be. Um, but I think it is interesting as well that it can be a person, but it can also be an entire environment that allows for those things to become exposed. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, I think sometimes for folks who like are outside of that high performance or elite sport environment, it's hard to understand like the, like the thirst for performance and for medals, you know, that kind of like that everyone shares in that environment. And that can kind of end up with a situation where lots of people are putting lots of blinders on about lots of things. And right? I kind of have it while I understand that point, I do. And I'm, I want to go back to what Jill said, because I think that was really valuable. And that perspective of the organization and the culture being instrumental in allowing that predator to come into the environment. That's something that I don't, I don't personally speak about a lot because my experience with this person is so different and it ran so deep that when I think about this situation and what happened, it's him and me. Um, so I come at it from a very different lens than they let it happen. I come at it from like this person, but they did let it happen. Um, so there is, that is what happened, but for me and my experience, it was never about medals, which is the very embarrassing thing, right? It was never like, there are so many things that led it to be able to last for so long. And there's a lot of like, I feel not ashamed because I was slightly embarrassed that there are things that are excusable and inexcusable on my behalf. Um, and things that are like defenses in normal cases like this, like she was a child or, um, I don't know, he preyed on her. Um, it's, it's very unique to my situation in which I actually believed that we were best friends. Mm -hmm. And I actually believed that he cared about me as a person and that is what sold me on fo like following him blindly. And I, to this day, do not understand how it happened. I still don't understand why it happened. I, I, I often cannot wrap my head around it because it is, it is a part of me that I, I don't understand. No one that I've talked to, except for people who have gone through it, can look me in the eye and say, yeah, I can, I know what you're feeling. And so it was, yeah, with him, like it was never about, it was never even about speed. It was about like trust and loyalty and respect and like those big values that like someone like me really, really freaking cares about. And I was like totally willing to be like, if I just respect him more, trust him more and more loyal to him, like I will feel purposeful. So I think there's danger in the approach to safe sport to look and say, oh, well, they're coming in because they want medals and everyone's turning a blind eye for the sake of medals. Yes, that is true. But predators like him come in through with varying tactics and varying goals. And I think his goal ultimately was to 
build relationships with people that had an army behind him. So no matter what he wanted to do, he could do it because he had a very loyal select group of people that would throw themselves on train tracks for him. And he was very successful in doing that. And through that, Oh, go ahead. I was going to say too, I think too, at times, Jenny, like the conversation starts around medals and getting your performance better. That's like a typical story you see is like, it starts with that, but then that's like the way they get in. Cause they don't start saying, I want to be your best friend because you'd be like, I don't want to be your best friend. Like it doesn't start there. Right. Mm -hmm. Like it happens over four years, three years, two years, where it's like a slow progression of them real almost seeing, okay, how far can I go? And I think it can start with, oh, I'm just, I'm just doing this to help you get better. And then the other things start can begin to happen after that. And that's what happened with me. Like you brought up the 2K erg earlier. And I I'm not really, I don't know. I don't like talk about that often because she's very humble. Well, it was a long time ago. And, (laughs) and also like that 2k erg is like when it all started. So like he was sitting right beside me during that erg and he saw something that he could work with. And I firmly believe that. And from that moment on our dynamic completely changed because he saw someone with raw power and it became you're strong, you can be something. And then he fostered that because I believe that he was the key to that. And then over the course of time, it was, I've got your back, no matter what, I've got your back and just do your best. Like we're best friends. You trust me. You trust me with your life. Like you're the only person here. I trust like all those things just kept adding up to the point of which there's no return to the point of which I stand by nobody could have told me what was going on and I would have believed them. Every single person, if someone would have come up to me in that time and said, hey, he's doing this to you, I'd have been like, you're crazy. You're just jealous. Uh And it's like, how do you tell someone what is happening to them when they can't see it and they don't want to see it? Yeah, I I think what you're saying, like it's a very, it's a common story for that I've heard with other people who have come out of situations like what you're describing Jenny and like I think one of the keys there is that like the predator or the person in power in that situation like they believe their own bullshit as well yeah which is why it's like super hard to get because they're not coming in thinking I'm a predator I'm gonna do this this and this I'm gonna control this environment of these people in this way I'm gonna do this thing you know like that's not what they're thinking they're thinking like he probably believed that he like and to some extent that it's like true that it's like it's just that person's way of having your best interests at heart like completely the wrong way right like it's but I I think they believe their own bullshit and I think as well in a lot of these cases um we worked a lot with Allison Forsyth from ITP Sport and she was like a good way of talking about as well as grooming the gatekeepers because I think one thing that you read a lot and you see a lot in environments is that athletes are segregated from their families. They're in a training environment, or even if they're adults, it doesn't matter if you're 30 years old, you can still have this experience. You don't have to be 14 or 12. Like it, it's, it doesn't have to do with your mental ability. I mean, there's other risk factors if you're younger, but there are adults in the room who are supporting the coaches and their decisions they're making. So that also makes it very confusing when there are adults that are there that are 
backing up the figures that are doing these things, I think it can be also troublesome because there are adults in the room and they all agree. So it can't be like, why would it be bad if our high performance director, all these, like, you know, it's normal as to what Jenny said. So then that's also can make you, I think, question yourself because, well, these other people who are acting like this, but they, they're good people. They like him. They're not bad coaches. So it's just the athletes that are complaining because they don't like X, Y, Z. Exactly. And it's the moment because the moment when the conversation and you start hearing, oh, so-and-so is just being so-and-so today. Like as soon as you start referring to it as them just being them, and it's, that's like a mutual understanding across men, women, sports staff, whoever, that that's the person just being them. That is a red flag. If you're having to mutually collectively agree that that's just them being them, like, I don't know how that was bypassed so, so quickly. Um, and then I think another thing that happens so frequently is you just get this disgruntled athlete uh, victimhood. Like you just start blaming the athletes for, you know, not being strong enough or complaining or looking for excuses or being like, it is just like, oh my God, what if you have 25 athletes coming to you about the same person, could you just look in the mirror? Like, is it that hard for you? And it's exceptional and, and like flabber. It boggles my mind how for five years, at different times of the year, different years themselves, variety of situations, different relationships, like so many people went and raised their hand and it's been documented and nothing happened. And the question is, so you're telling me nothing is valued, nothing is valid until it becomes sexual. Is that what I'm hearing? Because that is a, that is not okay. Yeah, that is not okay. And that's, yeah, that's what, yeah, my follow-up there's like, do you, how did you all and your whole group of athletes, like, how did you get out from underneath that when people were speaking up or what eventually changed? Well, I think to like, kind of there's two moments. He actually was fired, um, before the Olympics, um, out of the blue, like then they wouldn't tell us why. We phoned someone to ask why. And this person said, and let's be clear, at this moment in time, we were both heavily invested in this person, like heavily, like heartbroken and like world was over that they had fired this person. We were like searching every corner to figure out why. And the answers we were given were, you know what? We can't tell you, but it's in your best interest. End of conversation. But that was like, you, we already don't trust you. You know, we already don't trust you. You know, we already quite frankly don't like you. And we don't think you have our best interest in mind because you just took away the person that was going to lead us to glory and our confidant who knows all of our secrets and whose secrets we know all of. What do you mean it was in our best interest? So that that was, that was step one. Sorry, Jill, I, I wanted to add that. Um. Yeah. So he was fired and we're in Canada, put out a press release like that. He was moving on um, before the Olympics. And I think at that point, though, the team was pretty divided. 
on because there was like a group of people who were quite upset that he was fired. There's a group of people who are, you know, popping champagne. I think our team actually, the women's team did an incredible job at respecting one another during that. Cause I know that there are people who are happy, people who are struggling. And I think there was this, I, it's almost actually kind of baffles me in that moment, how mature everyone was and respecting everyone's own journey. Um, but I think a lot of the cultural damage had been done between support staff, you know, um, board members, the athletes themselves. And so that remained intact, like not horrible, but I think a lot of things that happened even on the men's program that really caused a huge division amongst every single program. I think that's one thing that happened was it wasn't, we had a, a specific incident on our team, um, but the entire team, because of the system that allowed for that to happen, also allowed for other things to happen and division amongst coaches, amongst training groups to really foster. Instead of being, oh, it's us versus the world, it became, oh, everyone versus each other, men and women. Um, when it's just, we talk about this a lot in rowing, it's really misplaced competitiveness um, and it can become personal. And then um, it wasn't until I'd say last year when Jenny shared her experiences with the entire team, um, with the team first, all the women who were on the Tokyo team, that w- that then the group had a conversation about what had, and then I think other people also shared experiences, which like we didn't think would have been possible. Um, and then you kind of realize, oh, it's not just one person it's been multiple, you know, it's not, it's, it was a lot bigger than I think people kind of initially realized. Um, and Jenny, I'll let you to speak to that. So that's kind of, there was an initial, that person got removed, but that didn't fix any of the, the issues I'd say. And then it wasn't until Jenny came forward to the team that then there was, you know, you know, until we actually did any work around safe sport, we hadn't done any training around safe sport. still, We hadn't done, we still had no education around it. Like nothing had really changed at all. Like the culture really hadn't been addressed until we really, uh, I should say, like Jenny pushed it to a point in which they really had to address it. And since then, we've done a lot of work. I really struggle in talking about this without getting very, very angry Um, because I am angry and I'll be angry forever. And I don't really, that's fine. I can live with that. Thank you very much. Um, but when they dismissed him, it was very much like done, problem solved, close the door, no issue here, everything will all go back to normal. Okay, so let's break this down. Your back to normal is removing one piece from the bottom of the Jenga. That's what you're doing. That's what, that is what you are doing. And everything is falling down and you're just sitting back and hoping it'll you know, pick back up to whatever you expect it to be with no action, none. And that led up. So he left and going into Paris, like there was, or going to Tokyo, there was like this sense of relief from some of the team, like Jill said that he's gone, but nothing was fixed. We were still all, and COVID obviously made this worse. We were all training separately. We were all bashing each other. Um, No one got along. Like it was not good and it was like but don't but we fix the problem but we fix the problem and I had an opportunity to be by myself for six months um after the Olympics because I got uh surgery and 
I am like so grateful that I got the surgery for a, a variety of reasons. But the biggest reason was like, there were a lot of dark moments. <laughs> and one of those dark moments, I confided something in Jill about um, this person and what he had done to me. And she like, like lost, like, she was like, what are you talking about? Like, he did not do that. And I was like, yes, like he did kiss me. And she was like, you need to do something. Like, she was like, holy shit. I didn't know that because I had spent my entire five years, like lying about like going to his house for dinners, going to his house for breakfast, like driving to the boathouse with him, like all these, buying presents for him, like all these things. I had not told anyone because of this huge sense of not shame, but normal, like it's normal, right? Like this is what we do um, because we trust each other because we're best friends. Like this is totally fine. Um, And then like, that is when just like the floodgates opened. And I was like, what is happening? And I was, I couldn't walk. (laughs) She had hip surgery. I had hip surgery. So this is like, this is, yeah, this is round two of my hip. So I had to get the one done in October and the other one done in January. And this all happened in February. So I was like, ah, mm-hmm. I was on a lot of drugs. Um, and I was living with my parents. Now I want to paint the picture of my parents. When you think of super cute, innocent, old parents, those are mine. Mom's five, one dad's like just hovering under six foot, like best intentions. Like everyone says their parents are the best. My parents are the best. Last thing I want to do is crutch over and tell them about, you know, what's happened the past five years while their daughter's been on the other side of the country. Um, so that was unfortunate. And I, Jill, you know, was like, what else happened? And I just started writing. I started writing all these things that happened to me, like pages and pages of just like things that I was like, huh, that was kind of weird. And then I just like started like basically throwing it everywhere. I remember writing it all down, looking at it and being like, whoa, damn, I messed up. And I was like, immediately, I'm never telling anyone about this. No one needs to know. Like, this is horrible. Like, I can never even like think about this again. Like, this is the like, I am a horrible person, yada, yada. And but I did want to tell my coach at that time because we were all still in communication with him. So when he left, they didn't check if he was talking to people, they didn't check if he was still like associating with us. He was still talking to multiple coaches on the team, multiple athletes on the team. Like he was, he was still on the web because they had just left him, but we were FaceTiming all the time. We were calling all the time. We were texting every single day and no one knew obviously because I had him saved under a different name of my phone, all that kind of stuff. Um, and yeah. And so we were just like floored. And then I, like I said earlier, I get angry really easily. And when I started talking about this, I got met with Shh. like, I'm sorry that happened to you, but let's just, let's just move on. And I had one person in power tell me that if I tried to come forward with this, like other girls were going to come forward with their stories. And that was going to be a really big issue And that if like people started hearing this, like there might even be things such as like suicide. And that's when I, that's when I lost it. And I was like, nope, nope, not now, not ever. 
And so I was like, I don't really give a shit what you want to do. This is what I'm doing. And you can kick me out of the team. You can put me in the poster child for a disgruntled athlete who's trying to ruin lives. I don't care what you do, but this needs to be talked about mm-hmm. because everyone there thinks that everything I see and everything they do, I send to him and I tell him, and they were entirely correct. And so I couldn't be on that team having my teammates think that I was funneling information and funneling gossip to this person. And I needed to make that clear. And I didn't care if they thought that I was lying. That wasn't the point. The point was that's what was the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. And so I met with the staff and I needed Jill there the whole time because I was not okay. And she came with me every single step of the way. And I also had Penny Werthner, who was like instrumental. She's a psych, she's based out of Calgary, exceptional, exceptional psychologist, helping me every step of the way because I was not strong (laughs) in those moments. And I met with all the staff and I was like, this is what happened. And they were all like, yeah, we, we knew something like that was going on. Like we saw things and like, it was a little weird. Yeah. Like I had one person be like, oh yeah, we saw you like get out of the car with him. But like, we just thought it was like weird. And like, so that was the response basically. And they got, I should like, add, there were a lot of staff members who were very, very upset. Oh, I want to double down on that. Mortified, mortified. They were not passing it off as it was okay. They were passing it off as they really, really didn't want to believe it was true. Because our staff at Rowan Canada and our staff at Pisces are some of the best humans I've ever worked with. And I will die on that hill. They are awesome, awesome people. And to have to look them in the eyes and tell them that that was happening and they were around was not fun because that was gut-wrenching. Like, I'm talking, I don't know if you've worked with any of them, but they are just like stellar. So that was step one. And step two was telling the girls. And that was also not fun because there are some women on the team who are very strong and very strong-minded. And I also knew there was a lot of hurt on the team and I wasn't trying to hurt anyone further, but I didn't see bringing this forward, hurting people more. I saw it as freeing people and bringing people closer together. And I really hoped that was the outcome. And I was met with like, oh my God, like, we knew there were signs. We're so sorry. Like, and then I was met with me too. And it was never, and something that I said to all of them was, I'm so happy that all your experiences never reached the level and depth of which my experience with him were, because I would not want you to go through that. And I think, I don't, I'm sure people say that all the time. I, I don't know if that's something that's just said. That's what I believe. But the fact that this man did that to those other people and they like felt that it was just them too, or they told a couple of friends and then just like tried to forget about it. Like that was very disturbing to me. And I had never felt more proud to be associated with such like it's cliche, but such strong women and like this immediate sense of just utter respect for the people that were around me. Like I didn't respect any of my teammates last quad. Mm -mm, Nope. I didn't like any of them. I was terrible to be around, like not a good time. Um, I always thought like our program was the best and like we were trying the hardest and all this bullshit that was fed to me, I just ate up. 
And then you just like open your eyes and you open your, like yourself to your teammates and you're like, oh my God, this is the way it's supposed to be. Are you kidding me? This is what we're missing out on. And so from then, like we connected with Allison, we worked as a team, we worked on our culture. We have an awesome high performance director who's like super committed. Like Adam is just the most like culture, 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 like high performance director we ever had. So I, I know I've been talking for a long time. Uh, I apologize. Uh, but yes, it's very important. And I, it, a lot happened. <laughs> yeah, I think it is really important. And like, that was so brave of you. Um, and I admire you so much for like those steps that you took then and sharing it now. Um, I'm wondering like what you're saying that the culture, you know, you have a good high performance director, the culture has changed. What are the, you know, if someone's listening and they're like, uh Oh, I don't know if I'm in a good culture or a bad culture. What, what would be the uh, markers, like the indicators that, that you would say of a good culture in that kind of environment? I, th- I think sometimes the first thing that, and I think it's a thing a lot of teams are doing now is there's like two things I would say, not even as markers, but like more like in retrospect is like gut feelings are usually correct. A lot of people say that, like if you feel something in your gut, it's probably right. So if you feel a gut, if there's a gut feeling, um, probably best to not ignore that and try to explore that further and to have a conversation with someone, maybe even like your parents about it, because I think we can think a lot as athletes, oh, my parents don't get it. Or my friend who's not an athlete doesn't understand because they're not in it, but they probably can see things clearer than you because they're not in it. Um, And a big thing, if I wanted to check if my environment was correct, I probably, I think the biggest thing is education, right? Understanding what, because there is this paradigm shift. And I actually don't blame a lot of coaches who, before getting educated, like you're coaching the way you were coached. You're coaching the way that you see in movies. You're coaching the way your coach growing up. Like you're coaching the way other people coach and it's worked and people are happy and there are athletes who love you and there's nothing wrong with that. But we're, the society is learning that there are some long-term impacts and there, there are people who are coaching poorly, not because they're predators, because they don't know how to properly coach to ensure that there's wellness as well as performance. And then there are also the examples of predators. So I think as an athlete, the best thing that, or I think it should be mandatory. I think it is now organizations should, you know, it's not like an online thing that you click through. There needs to be some actual training for athletes and staff and support staff to understand what does good coaching look like and what those boundaries are. And then, so I think if you kind of were like, oh, I don't know about my environment, like it's all out there now of what it's called the UCCMS of what good coaching practices are. And you can go through that. And if things are crossing a line, like we used to use WhatsApp all the time as a team, as a way to communicate. Now we only use Teams, Microsoft Teams. And switching to that makes sense because you the rules, you should never be texting a coach. You should never be messaging like through text message or WhatsApp anyone on the staff outside of teams and it makes sense now that we're doing it but back in the day we're all just texting and calling each other like normal and we're in a workplace mm-hmm. so i think there yeah it's a long answer but i think it's like the gut feeling if you have a gut feeling you should probably you're probably right and to like educating on yourself on like know what there are rules in sport like and it may i used to and I think a lot of people used to be like, oh, well, 
you're never going to get good performance or no one can coach anymore. No one can say anything anymore. And that's, I think it can be difficult for people to get there, but I do think that like, it just takes being a bit more open-minded to what that could look like. And then ultimately I very much agree with Jenny and like the entire, like, why would you do a sport if you're not happy? And I think ensuring that athletes are happy um, and autonomous allows them to get the best performance out of themselves. So I think it's like dual, like you could still get really great performances. And then I just like, there's, there's so much, I think, Okay. So there's so much out there. Yes. There's also so much to look forward to because things can always get better if they aren't good for you. I think if an athlete's looking around their environment being like, holy shite, like this is not okay. Hmm. It's there are people now that are like their hands are up. They want to talk to you. They want to hear from you. And they're going to give you real advice. That person for me, at least is Alison Forsyth, who not only can spot it and see it like it is, but also knows what those next steps are for you. If it's a big problem with your environment or if there's honestly, there's just a bad egg, like how do you deal with that? But you have to find those people because they are not everywhere and they are not easy to come by. And I think just getting people's names out there that victims, I guess, have worked with um, is important. And then also like when it comes to having the happy environment, I I look forward to the narrative continuing to shift away from, oh, well, we don't need athletes to be happy. Like this concept of like happy and we, and everyone's holding hands and like, you don't want to be happy and go slow. That's the point, right? But you want to be able to be okay. You want to be able to not have your entire team on antidepressants. Like that's a red flag. You, you want to be free and do your sport that you love with joy. And if that is how is under the umbrella of happiness, then yes, you want a happy athlete, but people need to really understand and prioritize the wellness and well-being of athletes and not make it, you know, this athletes are fragile now and you can't say anything it's like, you know, just listen to the science. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so you two have some big goals coming up as you head into Paris. Um, How do we, and I know you're also, you know, you've been looking for support. How do we follow you and follow your journey? Uh, We post a lot on Instagram. (laughs) That's That's amazing. That's our main thing. We like, Jill's really good at making reels. I never know what to put in the caption. So typically it's just rambling verbiage, but um, Instagram is definitely how you follow us. Uh, but we also love like networking. We love talking to people. We're big coffee chat people. Um, so honestly, like if you just want to DM us and talk to us, we'd love to talk about our sport because we love when people are interested in rowing. Um, but that's our, as far as following our journey, I would say Insta also coach Jer, our coach, he has like the best Instagram and rowing. So (laughs) yeah. And I think we're on like Vancouver Island. So if there are people who are interested in Rowing, like, it's not crazy if someone ever wanted to come out on the coach boat or, like, someone's thinking about rowing, like, to come out on the coach boat with Jeremy. He's awesome. He'll talk a lot. Like, if you want to come out for an hour or two, it's super easy. If someone wants to even see what our training is like, we're, you know, trying to do a better job at connecting to our communities. So that's something someone's interested in. Like, you can just ask to come along. It's not some secret garden in which you need, like, special permission to come join in. Um, obviously we're both hoping to be in the lightweight double 
uh, the Paris Olympics. Like we had a poor result in Tokyo. Looking back, I can kind of understand how we got to that poor result. There's a lot of things going on. And so I think for us, it's like an opportunity to, to really be free in our approach and to almost have like a do-over in a sense. And for both of us, we're going to be done rowing after this Olympics. Um, so it's kind of our last year to really pursue excellence in this way after we'll be pursuing excellence in different ways in our jobs and careers that we want. So it's kind of like for us, we're like, oh, it's our last year of really going for it and trying to create a further legacy for Rowing Canada and add to that and hopefully leaving a legacy behind us and adding to the culture, whether we accomplish our dreams, being part of someone else accomplishing their dreams um, as well. And I mean, we're obviously, we're not in the sport for money. Um, we're definitely not. So if there are people who are looking for ways to, you know, give back to athletes or be a part of an athlete's team or a journey, Jenny and I are both like very open to having those conversations. So if there are people who are like, oh, I have some extra money lying around. Um, we definitely would love to talk to you and see how we could work with you. Um, or even if you just want to be involved in a journey, I think it takes a community and it is fun connecting with the community. I plan on living on Vancouver Island after the Olympics and getting involved with cycling and running and all that fun stuff. So it's always just great to connect because um, we're all Canadian. We all love sports. So if we can share that a little bit with other people, it makes it more fun for us too. Yeah, we do a monthly newsletter. That's fun. <laughs> How do we sign up for that? Uh, you got to donate as far as it's, it is right now, but we can figure it out. You can just have it. <laughs> oh, we'll go, we'll go to the link. We'll put a link in the show notes here okay. so that people can go and check it out. Sure. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you both so much. Thank you for everything that you do um, for your openness in this conversation. Really appreciate it. So thank you so much. Awesome. Thanks. It's so fun. Thanks, Sarah. Endurance sports should be accessible to everyone, right? That's why we are so excited to be partnering with Motive. Motive is one of the fastest growing training apps in the world today with thousands of amateur athletes signing up every month and a nearly perfect 4.9 star rating in the app store. You are not a template and your training plan should not be either. Prepare for running races, triathlons, cycling events, duathlons, or swim runs, however your season schedule shapes up, and get training written by some of the best coaches in the world in each discipline who know what it takes to help amateur athletes reach their goal on race day. The app takes the training written by those experts and then creates the most optimal training plan for your schedule, abilities, and goals. Plus, the training is fully customized to your race schedule. How much you can train each week, your current abilities, and the goals you want to achieve in your race. You can use the app for free as long as you want or get all the upgraded features from the app for just $19.99 a month. But as a feisty listener, you can sign up at mymotive.com and use the code FEISTY for two months of full premium access. That's right, you get two months of premium for free. So you quite literally have nothing to lose. 
So head over to mymotive.com, M-Y-M-O-T-T-I-V.com and use the code FEISTY, F-E-I-S-T-Y. And on a personal note, I know the founder of Motive and he is driven to make triathlon and all endurance sports more accessible for the athletes who care about their performance, but who aren't quite ready for a full-time personal coach. If that sounds like you, definitely try the app for two months for free. You literally have nothing to lose. As we head into summer, rest and recovery are critical for improving sports performance, reducing stress, and living a long and healthy life. We should all invest in better sleep. So think about the thing you lay your head on for eight hours a night. If it's not exactly right for you, it can lead to needless tossing and turning, or worse, have you waking up with an unrelenting kink in your neck. My new Lagoon pillow has helped me improve my sleep immensely by pairing me with the performance pillow that has everything I need. So I personally was matched with the Otter pillow, shout out to Team Otter, which I love because it has a gentle cooling effect. And I was able to choose how much stuffing I wanted in it, which is super important to me because I'm doing a decent amount of CrossFit these days and my shoulders are kind of creaky. So having a pillow that is stuffed just to the right height keeps my neck and head in exactly the right position and comfortable for the entire night. And as of fall 2023, Lagoon launched their 100% mulberry silk pillowcases. It's cool to the touch, buttery soft, and great for your skin and hair. You've got to go check out this pillowcase if you want to feel great and look great every morning. Waking up for morning workouts has never felt better. I'm refreshed and pain-free thanks to my Lagoon pillow. To check it out for yourself, go to lagoonsleep.com forward slash performance and take the two-minute sleep quiz to find your perfect pillow match and then use the code PERFORMANCE for 15% off your first purchase. That's code PERFORMANCE at lagoonsleep.com forward slash performance, whole 15% off, and the link is in the show notes. You can just click through there.